when I think about environmental justice, kind of the first thing I think about is, for example, like climate change impacts don't impact society evenly, right? And so it's not, again, it's not really that the hazard is different. It's that the vulnerability is different. Welcome. You're listening to Amplifier, raising voices against rising temperatures. We're a group of Emory students, alumni, and a professor passionate about bringing people together around the current climate crisis. We aim to equip listeners to accelerate climate action by providing accessible information, amplifying diverse voices, and highlighting the intersections of environmental issues. Join us this season as we investigate the climate crisis through a variety of different lenses and topics. Hi, my name is Gabriella Rucker, and I'm here today with Eden Jonas and Gina Kim. In the past 20 years, we've seen major hurricanes hit the U.S. and cause extensive damage to our coastal communities, such as Hurricane Katrina, Harvey, Maria, Irma, and Michael. In this episode, we had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Thalia Mayo. Dr. Mayo is an assistant professor in the Department of Mathematics at Emory University, where she develops hurricane storm surge models. Coastal communities use these models to investigate the impact of climate change on flood risk and proactively implement resilient strategies. Dr. Mayo has received the Early Career Research Fellowship from the National Academies of Sciences Gulf Research Program for her work, as well as the Early Career Faculty Innovator Award from the National Center for Atmospheric Research. She is a strong advocate for equitable and inclusive science that benefits all people. In this interview, Dr. Mayo discusses her research, her personal experiences with hurricanes, and how climate change will disproportionately impact vulnerable communities. Thank you for joining us today. Please introduce yourself and tell us more about your research. Okay, my name is Talia Mayo and I'm an assistant professor in the mathematics department at Emory. I have been doing numerical storm surge models, so I study the coastal flooding that comes from hurricanes. I also look at kind of how climate change impacts storm surge risk. Um, So how is the risk changing as the climate does? What inspired you to study hydrodynamic models? I was really interested in Hurricane Katrina or became interested in hurricanes right after Hurricane Katrina, um, like a lot of people that I knew at that time. So I was in college, um, actually living in northern Louisiana when Hurricane Katrina um, struck the Gulf Coast. And so I was able to kind of experience secondhand the impacts of that storm. So we weren't affected physically by this storm, but a lot of my peers were from the Gulf Coast. And so I started to just really pay attention and notice um, the, 
you know, devastation that this one storm caused. Um, and so I just got really interested. I was a math major and wanted to know kind of what could I do or how could I apply math to study hurricanes or things related to hurricanes. And so when I applied to graduate school, my PhD advisor now, or who became my PhD advisor, he specializes in numerical modeling of, of storm surges. And so I had done like a small research project um, following Hurricane Katrina about hurricanes and kind of the sensitivity of the intensity to atmospheric water vapor. And so I think that stood out to him that I had like tangentially related research experience. And so I started working with him. His name is Clint Dawson at UT Austin. And then I just have kind of stuck with that. You say you study the response of the ocean to the atmosphere. What makes this so important in understanding threat of hurricanes? Yeah, so I think that there's kind of a general emphasis, I will say, on storm intensity. So if a hurricane is coming towards um, the coast, then everyone wants to know, like, what category storm is it? And so that actually has to do with the wind speed, so how fast the hurricane is rotating. Um, and so people think about that a lot, but then that's not actually what causes a lot of the death and damage in the United States. So our building codes are such that a lot of buildings can withstand wind, but it's kind of flooding that causes a lot of problems for people. So most people have wind insurance, but they don't have flood insurance. And for Katrina, especially, it was just kind of like the perfect storm of events area, area that was under sea level, um, that made flooding especially devastating. So um, there's kind of an often cited statistics that over half of the deaths from hurricanes in U.S. history are from storm surges, not from wind. And so most of that is actually due to Katrina. So it just ends up being really, really devastating. So it doesn't happen often where you have like lots of death from hurricanes or from hurricane storm surge. But when it does happen, it has the power to be really, really devastating. And then it also kind of has cascading effects. So like flooding can influence roads or infrastructure um, and prevent like evacuation or um, contaminate water supplies and other things like that. So it just has like really, long-lasting, I would say, consequences, as opposed to the meteorology, once the storm is gone, it's just gone. But the flooding, you kind of have to deal with those impacts um, even after the storm passes. Do you have any stories that stand out that you would like to share in your career of studying coastal areas and how they are impacted by hurricanes? Maybe a good story is during Hurricane Irma, which happened in 2017, maybe September. I was six months pregnant with my daughter and living in a house by myself. And so like Irma was really big and really strong. Um, and so they kept showing these graphics on the news of like this cyclone going all the way up the coast of Florida. And so it was basically like bigger than the Florida Peninsula. That's where I was living at the time. And so everyone was like texting me every five minutes, like, get out, like evacuate, uh, you need to leave, like, this is going to be terrible, come stay here. And so it was really, really stressful, not because of what was actually happening, but just kind of like the mass hysteria around what was happening. And so it was good that I kind of like 
am in this area because I understood, well, I'm pretty far inland. So I'm not really going to be affected by coastal flooding. Like if anything, there might be inland flooding, the flooding from the rain, which I wasn't as concerned about. And so that kind of helped me stay a little bit calmer. And so in the end, that storm actually went right over Orlando, which is where I lived. But it was it was fine. Like I'm still alive and my house is fine. Like our fence flew over. And yeah, everything turned out okay. We had like a, a power outage that lasted for four days in Orlando in September is still really hot. So that was kind of like the worst part of it was that I just didn't have AC for four days in Florida. And yeah, it just, you know, what do you do for four days? Like you're used to having a power outage for like an hour and then you kind of get over it and deal. So when people told me that that was, might happen, then I kind of thought like, okay, not a big deal. And actually is a really big deal. <laughs> like even for someone who's like younger and healthier like me. And so I think that was a, like all the firsthand experience I need, but like a good experience on the ground of like, what is it actually like to live through a hurricane? So yeah, maybe that's a story, but I'm, I'm glad it's in the past. <laughs> but what does the future of areas like New Orleans look like to you? And how do you expect for cities on coast to suffer more in the future from hurricanes? Yeah, so I think with sea level rise alone, I think coastal areas are at risk. Um, significant risk for just kind of regular flooding. There's something called like king tides in Miami where it's just every day the high tide flood areas. And I think as the sea level rises, we're just gonna continue to see that. So for low-lying coastal areas, I don't know, like I don't actually know how long they're going to be viable places to live in everyday scenarios. But I certainly, I'm happy to be inland. And so I think what's going to have to happen is people, I don't know, there's gonna to have to be some structural changes to help people either relocate or adapt to kind of what is coming. And so I think sea level rise is kind of a short-term process and it's gonna, you know, gradually happen. But when you couple changes in storm climatologies, there's a general consensus that they're getting more intense and that the strongest hurricanes are happening more frequently. And then you also have storm characteristics that change like size, which also impacts the amount of flooding you can have and translation speed. So how slow a storm moves, the slower, the worse, because then it's over coastal areas longer. So those are kind of short, immediate, impact so it's like if it's just sea level rise yeah maybe we have a little bit of time but like if you have a storm coupled on top of that then like it takes one time just like Katrina and so I think at, at some point like these areas will be uninhabitable but even present day if there's just kind of the perfect storm of events then it also puts people at significant risk and so I think what has to happen is that we're going to have to find a way to move away from the coastlines and we need to implement structures so that people have kind of equal opportunity to do that. So a lot of people live in various regions because 
that's where their family owns land. And so it's not just an option to just leave. And so we're going to need like greater support, I guess, from government or from collective societal efforts or something like some way so that people have the option to move because eventually it's not going to be an option anymore. And then I think at minimum, we need to do a better job of making sure people can recover. So if people do have to stay in the short term, if there is a catastrophe, then what do we have set up to really support communities in an equitable way? Because yeah, people need it. People don't have adequate flood insurance. Um, I think FEMA already operates at a deficit because we can't afford all of the disaster. And I saw something interesting recently that was saying like for every $6 we spend retroactively, like trying to make up for what's happened when there's a disaster, if we would spend $1 in like preventative measures, it would equate. So it's like we could do a lot if we take it seriously and plan but I think there's a lot of work to be done in, in like, what are the best ways to do that so that, you know, the people who need help and support really get it. And how have you seen climate change in your work? Yeah, so a lot of my more recent work has dealt with kind of what does storm surge look like under climate change. And so that's what I love about numerical modeling is it allows you to kind of simulate things that haven't happened and it's like a physics-based approach so when you do like let's say like machine learning or like data mining and that kind of things you have to have the data initially so you can't really predict in the same way like it's based on what's already happened so if we're talking about understanding like a climate that hasn't happened yet you can't really rely on historical data for that and so that's when our physical models come in handy because we can adjust maybe the wind input and then see what does the storm surge look like as a result even if we haven't seen it before um, so climate change comes up a lot for us as we try to understand, like, what does the flooding look like at the end of the century compared to what it looks like today, which is helpful in thinking about, like, what are the ways we need to plan kind of longer term. What defines vulnerable regions in your research? Yeah, so that's a tricky question. So I definitely focus primarily on the hazard. And I think in kind of my later education, I learned to define risk as a product of hazard exposure and vulnerability. So hazard, like what's what's the catastrophe or disaster that's actually happening? And then exposure, like what's actually there to be destroyed. So the same catastrophe that happens in maybe an uninhabited area then has a lower risk than that catastrophe that happens somewhere else that's like densely populated or has a lot of infrastructure there and then vulnerability and so vulnerability as I'm about to answer like what does that mean so I focus primarily on hazard so just kind of the storm but again, if you have a, a community that's more vulnerable, then that would increase your risk, right, as one of these factors. Um, and so for me, I guess vulnerability can mean a lot of things, but I guess in a non-academic sense, when I think about vulnerability, I think about kind of who's there and what's their ability to recover. So if you 
if it's like a wealthy region where you can just rebuild. So for example, New Orleans, like they rebuilt kind of the touristy areas very, very quickly. And so, I mean, part of it was that they allocated resources to do that because they saw it as like a source of revenue for the city. And then some of it is, so some of it is that you have, you allocate resources and some of it is like, you just have resources, right? So like a lot of times hurricanes will hit Florida and those aren't people's primary homes. So those people have like another home to live in that, right? It's like everything's not right there. So I think a lot of it can be like financial. Um, and so your ability to recover after something's happened. I think that's the the main way I think about it. So like social vulnerability seems like really closely tied to like your economic resources basically. And I guess if we had like a different governmental structures in place, then it, it doesn't really have to be that way, right? Like it doesn't have to depend on how much money you personally have or your personal ability to evacuate. But I kind of like imagine a world where anyone who needs to evacuate could, they wouldn't be limited by, you know, the resources they had. And, and even when I was living in Florida during Irma, like that's one of the main things you have to weigh. Like I said, I was inland, so I was less concerned about it. But obviously if you live on the coast, every time there's a hurricane, most people don't have the means to just evacuate every time. And I think there may come a point where, you know, they need to, where it's like, yeah, I mean, the probability, the chance that you're gonna be flooded might be low, but the fact that there's a chance at all, and that if you are flooded, it's gonna have like really, really big impacts is worth kind of leaving. You don't wanna take the risk at all, but it's just people don't have that those options. So I, I think of it as like your capacity to, to move in a way like to take preventative measures whether that means like building something or raising your house or evacuating before a storm comes and then also your ability to recover. So, you know, how quickly does it take for you to bounce back? How quickly does it take for you to reopen your buildings or your schools to reopen and stuff like that? Definitely, thank you so much. Our last question is kind of a personal one. It's what does environmental justice mean to you? When I think about environmental justice, kind of the first thing I think about is, for example, like climate change impacts don't impact society evenly, right? And so it's not, again, it's not really that the hazard is different. It's that the vulnerability is different. And so I guess environmental justice is something like making things more equitable for people. So the last hurricane um, hit Central America, it hit Nicaragua like a week or two after another hurricane hit Nicaragua. And their president actually said something about the fact that like it's really these big industrialized countries like the US that are causing the most climate change but then they're getting impacted and countries like us are not doing anything to offer to help. And so I think if the, if there was environmental justice, it's kind of like, you know, we would all be 
taking responsibility for what's happening. And so the fact, even within the U.S., the fact that a storm hits one state or another, it doesn't become the burden of that state, right? The burden's on all of us to help those areas recover because we're all the ones that are contributing to what's going on. And some of us are contributing more. So when you think like globally, um, it's just kind of more of that. Like if the U.S. or other industrialized countries are really the ones contributing to climate change with our emissions, then it seems like justice would mean when other regions get impacted, they're not just left on their own to deal with it, that we are also the first ones or the primary contributors in helping them. And then I guess there's... Like I think about sustainability in the first place, right? So it's not just like, oh, we want to help humans recover from these disasters that we keep causing, but also like, how can we stop, <laughs> stop doing so much damage, right? Because even if we're environmentally just to the people on the planet now, like we're not being very fair to future generations, right? By destroying so much. So I guess these are some of the ideas that come to mind and just kind of like balancing out the damage we're doing with either help for who's being impacted and then maybe lessening or reducing that as much as we can for the people who aren't even here yet who are going to have to deal with the consequences. Thank you again to Dr. Mayo for her insight into this topic. Climate change is changing storm patterns and the world needs to be prepared to help coastal communities adapt. Dr. Mayo's work with mathematical modeling can provide information to guide policymakers and activists in these efforts. To learn more about Dr. Mayo's work, visit her website at www.taliamayo.com. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed this conversation. This week's episode was written and produced by Gina Kim, Gabriella Rucker, Edin Jonas, and Lauren Ballatin. The music was provided by Zola Berger-Schmitz and the graphics by Tyler Stern. You can learn more about us on our website and YouTube channel, Emory Climate Talks. Stay tuned for our next episode, where we will be discussing the history and science behind oyster aquaculture and how it plays a vital role in our fight against climate change. Join Jaya Brizendine and myself, Thomas Odlum, as we hear from Dr. Jane Harrison, a coastal economics specialist with the North Carolina Sea Grant, Dr. Ashley Smith, a professor of biogeochemistry at the University of Florida, and Miss Natalie Simon, a biologist at the University of Florida.